Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Okay, Valerie Hansen, Professor Hansen, it's a real pleasure to have you on the Reorient Podcast. Oh, it's so nice to be here, Jesse. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much. Well, we've known each other for a few years. I won't uh, say exactly how many, um, but uh, I really um, thought you were a wonderful professor when I was at Yale, and it's it's fantastic to see you still there, still teaching students, and still writing books. It's uh, and to to have that, uh, you know, my life's kind of gone through so many changes. And it's something somehow comforting to see that you're uh, you're still uh, doing what you uh, do. Uh, you count. I didn't. I didn't count, but I think you said still four times, five times. The uh, my husband talks about this that in academia people get a job, and especially if they get tenure, they're there for a long time. I remember going back <laughs> to visit Columbia. He went to yes. grad school at Columbia, and looking at the list of faculty and he's like these are there's two people here i don't know everybody else is still the same so it's we we move in a very glacial time still is the operative still word. is the operative word yeah exactly you might not i i mean you probably couldn't guess how many jobs i've had <laughs> <laughs> uh it's it's yeah it's uh so we, we we live in very different realities so it's it's nice to be able to connect with you with someone who's in a much more stable uh, situation. So um, so as you know, the Reorient podcast, we're focused on global issues and, and interesting people, um, global leaders from an Asian perspective. And I think, um, I don't think this is just me personally. I think it's, it's a broader than that, that I didn't really have, I would say, a great appreciation for history or great interest. And somehow in today's environment, and I'm not sure if it's because of how uncertain things are today, how much in flux, maybe we're lacking in confidence, maybe it feels like society's changing in ways that doesn't make sense. Whatever the reason is, history now seems more relevant to me. I don't know if that is something you've heard before. Or oh, I, I think that's true. I also think it has a lot to do with um, how old you are. That I, in the history department, I would say almost all of my colleagues were the very weird person who was interested in history early on. I remember my kids talking about one of my kids went on a trip, probably in third grade to a graveyard in our, in our town to look at the tombstones and everyone was bored out of their minds. Glad to be out of school, glad to be outside and bored by the graves, except for one kid who walked around reading all those gravestones. <laughs> I think, I think, so I think there's like <laughs> one kid like that in every class, I hope maybe. And they become the historian. And then everyone else, as they get older, is like, oh, how did we end up here? How did this happen to us? Or, oh, what's going to happen next? What, you know, if we, when is the last time we were in an analogous situation? Right. And when, what's going to happen next? And that, that question, I think, is not maybe a question that the young ask very often. You know, like, let's look for the most recent. Yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, for a long time, it just seemed that uh, history was separate from us. And we were in this sort of uh, enlightened modern era and whatever happened before was somehow not as relevant and worth uh, learning from. And now it seems like history has more to tell us. And I know that you've written a lot of books about history, even going back to the year 1000. So I guess I'd have two questions to start off with. Like, what? 
got you interested in uh, ancient Chinese history? And then the second is, and maybe it's a related question, is what, what, what are we supposed to learn from it or take away from it? Well, okay, in terms of what got me interested, I, I so I was that kid who was, I don't have a trip to the graveyard, but I was always interested um, in history. And then going into China was just a pragmatic career move that I got advice. I mean, admittedly, very early on from a high school history teacher in Britain who said, oh, you're a woman, you want to go into history, go into the periphery. There's more opportunity. Don't go into U.S. or American history, U.S. or European history. There's, mm, and she was, smart. she was really prescient because at that mm-hmm. point, this is the seventies, the mid seventies, most of the women who are joining all male history departments are doing women's history. And she was very smart to say, oh, it's going to, there's going to, mm-hmm. these history departments are going to open up and they're going to appoint women. They're going to appoint new faculty and there's a less entrenched old boys network in the new fields. So, uh, that, I mean, I got that advice. I was already interested. I had taken a course in Asian history uh, in high school. So I I was very lucky to go to a high school that had um, a lot of history offerings. And the rest, I was going to say the rest was history, except for getting kicked out of my Chinese class. I can (laughs) tell you freshman year. I can, if you want to hear that story, I can tell you that story. Sure. About what you want to hear that story? Okay. Well, I think um, many of our listeners, uh, yeah, many of our listeners probably have been in Chinese classes and, and probably might be able to relate. So yeah, please Okay. Share. So it's fall term. I have to say, this is a genre of story that I realize is very typical for people, fall term freshman year story. So fall term freshman year, I go to first year Chinese. Mm. I've never studied Chinese and I'm very self-serious. I think I always think if I met myself as I was as a college freshman, I would have hated myself that I was just like no sense of humor and just so intent, <laughs> so intent on being a Chinese historian. And which is so weird. Like how many 18-year-olds do you meet who are like, oh, I've got to die if I can't be a Chinese historian. Anyway, that's the way I was. And none, none. right. So here <laughs> I am. That's the kid I was. And the right. class, we had something like 10 kids and there were two of us who hadn't ever studied Chinese. And then the first five weeks were just phonemes and tones. So we'd go into class and the teacher would be like, ma, 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 ma. And we were supposed to repeat that. And of course, I couldn't hear any of that. I couldn't hear the tones at all. And the quizzes where she would say one word and we would write down the opinion and we would write down the tone. Couldn't, couldn't hear that. <laughs> but this is the old days. To listen, to study for Chinese, you had to go to the language lab and sit I mean, actually, as I'm sitting here with earphones on, but then sitting at um, a computer, listening at, at a tape recorder, listening to tapes of the tones. And they just happened that they kept a log of everyone who was in there. So I spent a lot of time in there. So she knew I was working very hard. And the day came, this was five weeks into the semester. The day came, bef- the next day was the day you had to drop class. And she summoned me. Oh, I was going to say, so class consisted of going around. She would say something. Everyone would repeat after her. And I would say it. And she would, the only thing she said to me for five weeks was, bu dui. <laughs> okay, wrong. That was the only, her only interaction with me. Bu dui. And I was like, okay, bu dui. Which, of course, I couldn't say the way right. I could say it now right. with my American accent. Anyway, <laughs> the day before the drop ad date, she summoned me to her office and she said, this is the first scene of the movie of my life, right? She said, uh, I don't know uh, how you're going to live your life. Maybe you have to learn Chinese, but drop this class now. Wow. You are not going to pass this class. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was, you know, a calamity. And I walked, I mean, I remember just like crying, walking around. And then I started on the round of advising of all the people I could possibly talk to about this catastrophe that had occurred to me. And I went and talked to, one of the people I talked to was uh, a secretary. uh, And she said, who was like working for, in the Center for Chinese Studies. This is at Harvard. So she's working at the Fairbanks Center. And she says to me, well, how many times have you failed Chinese? I said, oh, I haven't failed. I just got kicked out of my first Chinese class. She said, <laughs> oh, I failed three times till I passed my first Chinese class. What you need is a tutor. And, you know, it's so obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me. And it wasn't right. obvious to all the other people that were trying to help me with this crisis. And then, so I, I got a tutor. And then just, I think, being away from the class and this very mean teacher, who, of course, we call Dragon Lady, mm-hmm. right? That's the standard stereotype. And then being with a much kinder person, a one-on-one was what I needed. And then I w- went back into Chinese. And the good thing about that in terms of the narrative of how to study Chinese is nothing that happened afterwards was ever as bad as that first semester. Wow. So all of the tedium of studying characters was just that was that didn't bother me at all because that was just you put the time in, you can do it. Whereas that first semester, you put the time in, you can't do it, right? I couldn't do it. So that's and that kind of solidified my resolve. Well, I think there is something for being a, a China scholar when you come from a background um, like yourself and to some extent myself with no, uh, you know, really sort of Chinese background or connection, you've, it takes a real tenacity because you're really going to bump up against a lot of frustrations and obstacles, both in the language and the cultural differences and just lack of reference points. So how did you choose early Chinese history to go in as opposed to modern Chinese history? That was also instrumental. That was, uh, I applied to grad school. When I applied to grad school, I was kind of open to anything before 1949 that I don't know. I, I think by the time I graduated, I was not as interested in the revolution as I was as an 18 year old when I thought the Chinese had solved all problems in human society. This was, this was the <laughs> tail end of the cultural revolution and the news about what had happened in the cultural revolution came out slowly, but actually sort of came out. A lot of that news came out during my undergraduate time. Hmm. So I was interested in, I applied to grad school. I said, I thought I was interested in Qing history and the got in a couple places. And then the person who became my advisor made this pitch. Like if you come into, if you work in medieval and Song Song dynasty history, you'll be able to do anything you want because there's so few of us. Right. And I still think that's true. The farther back you go in time, the more freedom you have. Mm. Cause there's, I mean, there's a lot more people in the field now than there were then. So anyway, I bought the argument. And thought, okay, I'll, I will declare as a Sung historian. Was there obviously when you started entered into the field, um, you know, China? There still hadn't been any normalization of relations between the West and the PRC, and Taiwan was the recognized China. So there was ex- very limited uh, interaction between, say, the United States and, and China, uh, the People's Republic of China. In those days, did that? Um, I guess one is, did that? impact how you would look at history uh, or early history and and perhaps maybe early history becomes less influenced by whatever the situation is of the day than say modern history might be uh it's less interpreted through a a, a prism a, a current prism 
I, I mean, the big impact for me, and so I was, but I graduated in 1979, and by that time, people were already going to graduate American graduate students, but advanced PhD students were going to China. So as an undergraduate, the only non-Chinese person I met who hadn't been to China was a Canadian named Tim Brook, mm. who's like a big deal in in Chinese history now, um, who teaches at uh, University of British Columbia, and so. He was. He would tell us what China was like, and everyone was very interested. There was still a huge interest in China, even though you couldn't go to China. And mm. the, I mean, there were, I think, probably many more people were interested in China than were interested in Japan at the time. Wow! D- despite not being able to go, in, in in terms of the impact on me, the so I went to graduate school, and then the time came to go someplace and really plunge into documents and work on classical Chinese and, and reading classical Chinese documents. And the obvious place to go at the time, this seems so counterintuitive now, was Kyoto. Wow. So, you know, I, I went to Kyoto for two years and the um, and by that time I had been in Taiwan for two years and studied Chinese. So I graduated from college and then I studied Chinese one year full time. And then the second year, maybe more productively working and studying half and half and half. And then the, and working, I had a job, a, a job, which I don't think you can get since um, 9-11, the embassies have stopped doing this, but they, at that point, what had been the embassy in Taiwan had become the American Institute of Taiwan. It was mm-hmm. no longer an embassy. And they hired students to do tourist visas for the Taiwanese. Mm. So we did interviews and that was great for my That's Chinese. Great because, practice. Like, the opening four questions yes. were all the same. It was great <laughs> practice. And we read documents. We read supporting documents. I read household registers. And the comment, the questions, it was great for my Chinese because we interviewed through a glass window, which is too bad, but we were, you know, talking through this glass window with holes in it. And but I could see the people I was interviewing. And my first three questions were completely straightforward. Like, what's your name? You know, where do you live? Uh, what's your job? And then my fourth question was, how much money do you make a month? Mm. And that fourth question was so appalling to people mm-hmm. that you ha- you had, I mean, they, of course, were asking me that all the time. But um, Right. They, I was going to say that's a very Chinese question. <laughs> very Chinese question. Yeah. And the script, the script, I didn't write the script, right? The script was given to mm-hmm. me. But the if you said it with the if you said it correctly the person's face would be kind of like contorted with shock of like oh we've just gone from the softball questions to the hardball questions right. and they are actually going to figure out whether or not they're going to give me a visa um, if you didn't say it correctly the person would just be like what did you say right mm. there it was so out of left field mm. that their face would furrow and they'd just be like what <laughs> what so that was that was really good for 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 a spoken chinese so anyway, I, I had been in Taiwan. I, people at the time, which is so crazy to think about, people at the time said to me, professors said to me, you, don't don't waste your time going to Taiwan. You don't like you're going to be a medieval Chinese historian. You don't actually need to know how to speak Chinese. You right. need to read classical Chinese. That's the skill set you mm-hmm. need. Mm-hmm. But it was just so I mean, it was so dumb because it was obvious that or when I say dumb there was at least a 50 50 chance that China was going to open up and we're a lot of people were going to be going to China. Right. So to just say it's never going to open was so, Mm -hmm. that was just so ill um, misinformed. Yes. Anyway, I came back to the States, did my coursework. And then the time came to go someplace. 
And everyone, all of my friends and, and my advisor all had studied in Kyoto. So it's like, okay, go to Kyoto. And that point, this is now we're in the mid 80s. Kyoto is the world center for pre-modern Chinese history. You know, so I did not know that. That yeah. is so interesting. So and and you know, in what language is it being taught? Well, everything is everyone there is speaking in Japanese. So to be a medieval Chinese historian, mm-hmm. this is less true now than it was then. I would say nowadays you have to be able to read Japanese, but if you don't speak it very well, it doesn't really matter. Like Japanese. Japanese historians of medieval China will either be able to speak to you in English or in Chinese. There, and, and you know, you're I mean, yes, of mm-hmm. course, if you're going to go live in Japan and study in Japan, you have to learn Japanese. But if you just want to know what the Japanese scholars are writing about China, and especially now with Google Translate, I don't think Japanese is as important. But at that point in the mid '80s, all of the serious work was in Japanese, and people, the field was getting going in China. It was being revived. You know, the universities in China reopened right in late 70s. I I shouldn't say reopened. They opened to classes of people who've been selected by a rigorous entrance exam instead of by party criteria in the late 70s. And so they're getting going. And then the people who are teaching are people who were, uh, got their degrees before 1966, right? Before the Cultural Revolution started. So the Chinese, you know, part of this story is that I'm in Japan, but everybody in Japan is looking at China, trying to figure out, oh, like, where where are the good scholars in China and who's doing interesting work? And there was I went to a conference in Hangzhou in 1985 that was like the first international conference in Sung history. And the uh, that was a revelation to everybody. And then, of course, I was really glad I could speak Chinese, right? Because suddenly there was a, there was a, a I mean, there weren't that many of us who had recent. I mean, I had been in language class, you know, within the last decade. That was not true of most of the people at the conference. So, uh, anyway, that was the story of my language. Well, what's interesting? It's very interesting to me was the fact that Kyoto in Japan was the center of. Song dynasty and perhaps other dynastic research uh, into those periods of history. Was that because Japan was the center for all sort of China history research or because certain periods were deemed more relevant, say, to Japanese history? And so therefore, they it made sense that they would focus and have a, a large critical mass of scholars looking at those periods in, in, in Chinese history. Well, it's the the Japanese were very strong in all periods of Chinese history. Kyoto and, and yeah. Tokyo had divided things. So there were more Ming Qing historians in Tokyo than there were in Kyoto. In Kyoto, there were more people interested in the Tang and the Sung. And that was because different professors had argued for the importance of those periods. The people in Kyoto said the Tang-Sung transition was really the beginning of modern China, like early modern China, where people in Tokyo said, no, no, that transition came later. The, uh, but this was all the legacy of Japan's colonial presence in uh, China, and the research libraries were, were fa- that were in Kyoto were founded because of this colonial. I mean, they were founded in the, they maybe not have been founded, but they boomed in the 1930s. So the basically the legacy of Japan's colonies colonization of you know, North China and then the occupation of coastal China in World War II was having this very large group of Jap- Japan scholars who knew a lot about uh, China 
and I don't mean to minimize the the colonialist it, legacy. It's just, but that that's the reality of why there was such a pocket of knowledge there. Uh, but I'm also wondering because my understanding of sort of Japanese uh, history is that, or, or Japanese cultural history is that a lot of Japanese culture is influenced by uh, either Tang or Song culture. So they preserved a lot of the heritage from those historical periods that we, because with the flows and influences from China, you kind of re the reverse uh, of, of, of that sort of um, dynamic between the two countries. Is that? That's, is that's that true. I mean, I, I was going to say the key theorist for people in Tang Sung history is a man named, and he was a journalist who became a professor at Kyoto named Naito Torajiro. And his argument was mm. that China was like the his, Chinese history was like the history of a human being. So Chin Han, it was like a young boy. And then in Tang Sung, it was a man at the peak of his strength. And then there was inexorable decline after the Sung. And so that was his argument. And so Japan had learned from China in this Tang period, right? This period when China was in its peak of its manhood. And then by the end, right. the end of the 19th century, this is when Naito is alive, the early 20th century, China is this doddering, senile old man. And then the script here, I mean, you can see, I mean, that, you know, that has a kind of metaphoric power, right? Oh, okay, we can, this analogy works. We can see Chinese mm -hmm. history, this long sweep of Chinese history this way. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.